Our Bible reading this morning comes from 1 John, chapter 2, verses 15 to 25. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world with its lusts is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. Children, it is the last hour, as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. Even now many Antichrists have come. By this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it might be made clear that none of them belongs to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? if not the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This one is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. He who confesses the Son has the Father as well. This is the word of the Lord. So we're returning uh, this morning to 1 John, and we're continuing our series on what it means to be authentically Christian, which is really what 1 John is actually all about. And now as we've been looking through this book, we've seen that this letter has, was written to the early Christians to help um, them understand what it's like to be truly Christian. What does it look like to live this authentic Christian life in the world? And as we've been looking at it, we've seen that uh, actually what John was writing to these early Christians is just as applicable to us. And so far, John has been dealing with the fact that in the church at the time, um, there were these false teachers that were infiltrating the the church. And the church people were getting deceived by these false teachings. They were led astray. And so John writes uh, to the church to help correct this false teaching. And so the first chapter and a half has been about helping the church wrestle with this. How do you know who to listen to is really what that is all about. And John tells the church, if you want to have fellowship with God, you need to stick to the true and authoritative teaching that the apostles gave you. And we saw that as we apply that to us, we need to stick to what the word the bible we have we shouldn't take on board all these new ideas we should stick to what scripture actually says stick to true christian doctrine don't deny that you have sin as the false teachers have been teaching you that's what john says to them you need to recognize that all of us are sinful and fallen and we need to be saved and we are saved ultimately through christ we have to recognize that we can't save ourselves and so having confronted these, uh, these false doctrines, John now turns to the specific issues of what that means for them. What does that look like in life, in reality? How do we live in the world? And as we'll see this morning, he's really dealing with what is the heart desire, what is our deep desires within our hearts. 
And he says, uh, he shows us that really, because our hearts are corrupted by sin, we have a human tendency to seek the things of the world. We are, uh, we are allured, we are lured by the world, because it has this um, allure to it. And so, in verse 15, he says, Don't love the world or the things of this world, because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride in one's possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. Now, in some ways, we have to be honest, this doesn't seem like a very difficult part of Scripture for us to understand, is it? I mean, really, it's all right there in front of us. Don't love the world, love God instead. Don't love the things of the world, love the things of God. The things of the world will pass away, the things of God will last forever. Therefore, you should not love the world, you should love God. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. It seems pretty straightforward. But then we start thinking about it, and when we think about it, we start to realize just how nuanced actually uh, John is here. It, there's much more here than it seems at first. And that's always the way with the Bible, isn't it? Something that seems so obvious and, and clear when we read it and we think about it and we pray about it and the Holy Spirit starts to illuminate the text in our hearts, we start thinking, okay, well, maybe there is more here than I originally thought. And so it is with our text this morning. So let me show you what I mean. It says, Don't love the things of the world, or don't love the world or the things of the world, for if you love the world, then the love of the Father is not in you. Now that seems simple, except that God made the world and he made it good. I mean, when God makes the world, right back in Genesis, he looks at it. He surveys the mountains and the animals and the water separated from the land and from the sky and the light separated from the darkness and the sun and the moon and the stars all in their proper place and ordered and you know, arranged as they should be. And then when God looks at these things, what does he say? He says that they are good. And then when he completes creation after the sixth day, he says that it is, he looks at the whole thing, including humanity, and he says it is very good. And then God tells Adam and Eve to look after the earth, to tend to it, to order it, to bring good, uh, the good that is in it, to the forefront. He gives them a commission to live out in the world, and, and the world is good. So then, if the world is good, why should we not love the things of the world? I mean, God made the world, He made it good. Shouldn't we enjoy the blessings of the world that He has given us? And if so, how can, God, uh, how can John say here that if we love the world, then God's love is not in us? That seems a little bit harsh. Does that mean if I'm an environmentalist, the love of God is not in me for loving the world and not God? Isn't it because exactly because I love God and I love Jesus that I want to look after the earth that is entrusted to me? Now, the reason these kinds of questions crop up is because we, we tend to misunderstand. We, we're not really thinking correctly about what John means when he says the world, the love of the world. When he uses this phrase, the world, he's not talking about the material, you know, plane of existence, if you like. He's not talking about the earth as such. What he's talking about is, um, is the way the world runs, the 
the system by which the world is ruled, the world order, if you like. He uses the same kind of phraseology in, in Revelation where he talks about Babylon. Babylon is the world order. That's the way things are arranged. Now the world, he says, are run, is run by these three things that John writes about in verse six, uh, 16. It's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and pride in one's possession. So let's spend a little bit of time thinking about these things together. Because they make up the kind of governmental structure that runs our world. It ran the world in John's day, and it continues to run our world today. So let's look first at the lust of the flesh. Now this is physical bodily desire. It's not just sexual. It's meant to be understood more broadly as all the physical cravings of the body. It's where all the evil lust that we have to fill this craving is fulfilled sinfully. It is living essentially for physical uh, pleasure. Now one of the commentators, William Barclay, puts it this way. He says, uh, To be subject to the flesh's desire is to judge everything by purely material standards. It's to live a life dominated by the senses. It is to be gluttonous for food, overindulgent in luxury, slavish in pleasure, lustful and lax in morals, selfish in the use of your possessions, extravagant in the gratification of material desires. The flesh's desire disregards the commandments of God, the judgment of God, and the standards of God, and even the very existence of God. Now we have to be clear here, it is not that physical things are bad. Sex and food and rest and sleep are good things, right? But it is the desire to fulfill these things apart from God's plan for the world. To fulfill these desires outside of God's revealed will, that is the issue. You know, bodily pleasure outside of marriage desire for food to such excess, excess that it becomes gluttony. It is to take the good blessings of this world and to corrupt them and to live for them. The blessing of good rest after hard work is replaced with laziness and slothfulness. The dull bludger who hasn't worked a good hard day in his life, even though he's perfectly capable of it, is as guilty of living for the desires of the flesh, the lust of the flesh, as is the exceptionally productive person who travels the world and has a girl in every port. And when we become Christians, Jesus claims ownership, lordship, over our physical bodies and our physical desires in and in response to what he's done for us on the cross, we are to bring these in line with God's revealed will for, uh, for how things are to work. His design as is laid out in Scripture. So the lust of the flesh are the desires that come from within us that are filled outside of God's plan. The second thing that John mentions here is the lust of the eyes. Now, the last of the eyes are the desires and the cravings for the things that are outside of us. So if the lust of the flesh is inside of us, the eyes are the outside stuff. Now, Douglas O'Donnell, he writes a brilliant commentary on this passage, and he says this about our eyes. He says, of the whole body, these two one-inch wide openings are the parts that is most susceptible to sin. The devil wants our eyeballs. 
He wants them wide open to all that, uh, that is worldly on this terrestrial ball. He wants us to cover all that is opposed to God, whether it is un—sorry, uh, covered, covered all that is opposed to God, whether it is ungodly status or success, or pursuits, or possessions, or people. It's like a gut punch to the soul. For who of us have not desired our neighbor's house, or his wife, or his donkey? Maybe not his donkey, but perhaps his Tesla. Now here's the thing. Our world order is designed to exploit these two one-inch slits in our head that lead right into our hearts. When you go to Aldi and you go and buy something, after you've madly tried to catch the food as it comes at the end of the conveyor belt, what is it that the cashier always says to you? What do they say? Would you like a catalogue with that? Why is that? Because they know, as every other business knows, that this is the world order we live under. We have the lust of the eyes, the desires for the things that we see. It's a powerful motivator to buy. How many times have I found myself walking through the centre aisle to discover there's something I desperately needed just because I was reading through the catalogue. You know, we live in a world of pictures. Many of them seek to draw us away from God. That is the lust of the eyes, to see something, to desire, uh, to desire to possess it, but then to be possessed by it. That's the lust of the eyes. And the last one he mentions here that runs the world is our pride in one's possessions. Now, uh, I think we really should think of this as the temptation to self-determination. Now, let me explain why I think it should be the temptation to self-determination. Now, he says here uh, in verse 16, For everything in this world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but is of the world. Now, if you have a different translation there, you'll see that this pride in one's possessions is actually translated differently in a whole bunch of different text. It literally says, uh, in, the, uh, in the Greek, it says, the pride in life, now, or the pride of life. Now, the reading, uh, my reading of this concept here is that it's really what we would describe in our English language as a lifestyle. So, it's the life you live with all the things that go along with that. It's the stuff we surround ourselves, whether that's a latte on the way to work each morning, or the leather couches on which we sleep, or the holiday in the Swiss Alps, which, you know, we all take every year. Uh, it's our lifestyle that we live. And again, we have to be careful here. John isn't critiquing having a good lifestyle per se. The issue is not the lifestyle, it is the pride in it that is the issue. It's the attitude that looks at the lifestyle we lead and says in our hearts that I did this. I made this life happen for me. That's the problem. I'm the one who got rich by my work. I'm a self-made man or woman. That's the problem. It's the self-made, the self-determination aspect of it. 
Now, Jesus actually talks about a very similar thing in, um, in Luke chapter 12. This is Jesus speaking. He says, uh, Luke says, Then he told him a parable. This is Jesus. A rich man's land was very productive. So he thought to himself, what should I do? Since I don't have anywhere to store my crops, I will do this. He said, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And then I'll store all my grain and my goods there. And then I will say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy, eat, drink and enjoy yourself. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That is, uh, that's how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself and has not reached towards God. It is the pride of the lifestyle. It's the pride of one's possessions. That's what's happening there. Now the reason self, self-made man glorification is so stupid is that it rejects God's sovereignty over our life. It rejects the fact that God can say, I demand your life from, me, uh, from you this very day. Yes, you may have worked hard all your life, studied hard, dedicatedly applied yourself to your career, but friend, who decided which family you would be born into? Was that you? What control do we have over that? Who decided what opportunities would cross your path? Which schools your parents would put you in? What control did we have over who taught us to work hard and apply ourselves, right? Who is the one who gave you your talents or put you in places where they could be nurtured? Are we really so conceited that we think that there is anything at all like a self-made person? The pride of our lifestyle, the pride of our possessions, the pride of life comes because we think we are God. And that's an issue. And so those are the three things that govern our world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of the lifestyle, or the temptation for self-determination. But now notice, friends, this is an issue that has actually existed throughout all of human history. It is the very same problem that happened from the very beginning. It is the same thing that humans have struggled with ever since sin entered into the world. What was the first sin committed by Adam and Eve? Was it eating the fruit? Listen to what Genesis actually says. You know the story. A serpent comes, he tempts Eve and says, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? What is he doing? He's creating physical desire, the lust of the flesh, if you like physical desire in Eve. He's enticing cravings within her for that special fruit that she's not allowed to have. He's working on the lust of the flesh. So what happens next? I read from Genesis chapter 3 verse 7. So when the women saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes. This is literally the lust of the eyes. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. The desire to make one wise. In the context of the story where wisdom here is the knowledge and, um, and wisdom apart from God. That is the wisdom that this tree is going to give her. So for Eve, she's seeking to be self-made. She wants the wisdom that comes from eating this fruit. 
wisdom without reference to God's plan. That is the pride of self-determination. And as with all these temptations, temptations of the flesh, of the, of the eyes, and of self-determination, it results in only one thing, and that is sin to enter the world. And so she took the fruit and she ate it, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. This wisdom that was supposed to make them something showed them that they were nothing. But that is the world order we live in. The prevailing world order that continues to offer us these things. Wisdom if you will take it. The lust of the flesh if you will take it. The lust of the eyes if you will take it. And John here says to us, don't love those things. You can't love those things and love God at the same time. You actually can't fulfill the lusts of the flesh and at the same time trust God's plan for these desires. You can't simultaneously covet your neighbor's donkey and be satisfied with the gifts that God has given you. You cannot concurrently congratulate yourself on how self-determined you are and thank God for the gifts and the talents that he's given you. The allure of the world is strong. But John says, don't trust the world, love God instead. But it's not just the allure of the world that he's dealing with here. There's also the allure of the Antichrist. So I read from verse 18. Children, he says, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. By this we know that it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it might be made clear that none of them belonged to us. And then in verse 22. Who is the liar, if not the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This one is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. And he who confesses the Son has the Father as well. Now, friends, we need to be careful here because the word Antichrist, it's a loaded word, isn't it? We've understood it in various different ways, misunderstood it probably in more ways. And ultimately, we know that the ultimate Antichrist is Satan, the devil, right? We know that he's the one who stands against Jesus. But Satan isn't actually the only Antichrist the Bible talks about. In the context of 1 John, the Antichrist that he's talking about, the lowercase Antichrist, if you will, are those that stand against Jesus, all those who teach things contrary to salvation by faith alone. Now, this is going to sound harsh, but let me be bold. A number of years ago, I, was in, um, a, I, w- I attended a young adults growth group gathering, and on this particular night, they were talking about the need for us to get to God. You know, there's this chasm that exists between humanity and God. And, and it was understood that we are separated from God, that we need to have that divide crossed. Okay, so that's the context. And we talked about how we might cross that divide. And that the, the Bible says the only way that that happens is through Jesus, you know, God's only son. We have, he lived the perfect life. He took our sins on himself. He died in our place. He now offers us a way to the Father through him. 
by putting our trust and hope in Him. You know, the gospel, <laughs> uh, the basic Christian doctrine. And then a young lady in the gathering stood up and said, well, this all sounds very exclusive. And she proceeded to explain that really this is just the Christian way to get back to God, but that actually there were many paths back to God. You can follow the Hindu path or the Jewish path or whatever path. As long as you actually earnestly sought God, you would be fine. The many paths up the God mountain position, right? But in teaching this position, this young lady was in fact an antichrist. She was standing against Jesus and the salvation that is offered only through his sacrifice. And whenever you teach something that stands in opposition to the gospel, you are one of the many antichrists who have now come, as John puts it. This is a perfect case of the allure of the world that John is talking about because it sounds so lovely, doesn't it? It sounds so inclusive. And because we live in a world that's all about tolerance and inclusiveness, we want her to be right. After all, what does it hurt for us to believe in the Christian path and to support someone else to follow their path up the mountain? But she was acting as an antichrist and deceiving the people. And it was my task on the day to pretty harshly tell her that. And it feels harsh for us to hold to the truth of the gospel in a world that is so filled with this idea that tolerance is the same thing as celebrating every position. And in fact, we can be hesitant to correct people like that because we don't want them to leave the group, right? We don't want them to leave the church. But in fact, this is what the Bible says of them. Verse 19, they went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it might be made clear that none of them belongs to us. And so it was with this young lady. She could not take that and she left. And actually the church is better off for it. As harsh as that sound. For if we believe in a salvation different to the one that Scripture teaches us, even if it sounds nice, even if it fits into the world order we live in, it means we don't belong to the church. We don't have the Father if we don't confess the Son. So we are to be on our guard against these antichrists who try to draw us away through these alluring doctrines. There's the allure of the world, yes, but there's also the allure of these false doctrines. And so how do we do it? Where do we get the power to remain steadfast with all this allure around us? Well, John tells us that we have a stronger power. We have the anointing of the Holy One. Verse 20, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know the truth. I have not written to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it, and no lie comes from the truth. In the Ottawa Catechism in question 32, it says this, why are you called a Christian? And the answer is, because by faith I'm a member of Christ, and so I share in his anointing. I am anointed to confess his name, to present myself to him as a living sacrifice of thanks, to strive with a free conscience against sin and the devil in this life, 
and afterwards to reign with Christ over all creation for all eternity. If you are a believer, you share in the anointing of Christ. You have been set aside by God for his kingdom. This is true of every believer ever. We share the anointing of Jesus himself. And because of that, we have two great strong tools that help us discern the truth in the mix of all this allure that the world gives us. We have the Word, His Bible, Scripture, and we have His Holy Spirit that lives within us. And that means, friends, that we actually have everything that we need to live in this world. Yes, we will face temptations to be lured away, but we have the Holy Spirit to change us, to prick our consciences and to say, this is not the way, come this way instead. And if we are in doubt, we have a manual for life that we can go and say, look here, it says this, this must be true. We can choose not to listen to the serpent who says, did God really say you shouldn't eat from that fruit? We have the Holy Spirit that says, yes, God did say you should not eat from the tree of that tree, fruit of that tree, but all the other ones are available to you. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, I will choose to believe God. It means as a Christian teenager, we can see right through the peer pressure to do the wrong thing. We see straight through the anti-Christian doctrine that says you can be whatever gender identity you want to be. We can see straight through the fakeness of social media and the promise that this Antichrist offers us that says as long as you get more Instagram followers, you will feel amazing and you will be fulfilled because we know that the only thing that can really fulfill us is Jesus Christ living within us. As a young adult, it means that we can see straight through the worldly temptation to pursue career and relationship and independence outside of God. We see that this is really just a temptation to this self-determination, don't we? And instead, we who are believers will be able to choose Christ, to choose our career in line with who he's made us to be, not just the money that I'll finally get paid at the end. And we can choose to enter into relationships with other Christians because we can see that the allure of the flesh is strong. And it tells us that you'll just flirt to convert, but it never happens. And we can trust that God actually really did know what he was saying and doing when he said, you shouldn't be unevenly yoked with a non-believer. That's a good guardrail to have. And as parents, we can see straight through the worldly temptation to befriend our children rather than parent them, right? We can see that we should actually love our children and not seek for them to just like us. And sometimes because we love them, they won't like us very much at all. And we recognize that our primary responsibility as a Christian parent is not to provide them with all the opportunities we can for them to do extracurricular activities. Our primary responsibility is to get them into heaven, as far as it depends on us, of course. Of course, Jesus saves them, but it is our primary responsibility to disciple them to the best of our ability, even at the cost of a weekend sports clinic. Yes? And as mature Christians, we can see straight through 
the worldly temptation to spend our retirement traveling the world and collecting seashells from every beach. We can see that this is actually exactly the time of life when we are to invest into a spiritual legacy for the future generations by investing in their spiritual lives. You know, you might have the most experience of all of us here of what it's actually like to be God's child. Why squander it and deny it to the next generation simply because Noosa is quite nice this time of year? Each one of us has a gift and a responsibility to reject the world and to love God instead. doesn't matter what age group we're in. The gift is the discernment of the Holy Spirit as confirmed through Scripture. And our responsibility is to live that out in this world. So my friends, this is the question. Having heard that, will we live for the allure of the world? The allure of these false doctrines as they come by these antichrists? Or will we be Christians who listen to the voice of the Anointed One through His Holy Spirit? Jesus the Word who speaks to us through His Word and His Holy Spirit. Which will you choose? Will you, like some in John's book, fall away because we have succumbed to the allure of the world? Or will we again today commit to stand firm and to follow where Jesus leads us and his word teaches us? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. What about you? Let me pray. Lord, it is always good to again be confronted and to be cut to the quick about our priorities in life, whether they are priorities of career or relationships or um, pursuit of wealth or possessions. We pray that our priority might be you and your kingdom, to pursue Jesus and what he wants for us. We pray that you will give us such a vision, such a desire to live for you, that we cannot help but reject the allure of the world and to live for you instead. We pray that you will help us to do that, empower us through your Holy Spirit, teach us through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.